right, guys, welcome to episode 50 of the Wavy New Yorker podcast. I'm your host, Elijah Taylor. Um, on one end of the line, I have Akil St. Louis, the OG of podcasting. Thanks for pulling up, Akil. Sure and on the other end, we have a really, 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 really special guest for our 50th episode. We have Chad Little. Chad, I appreciate you for coming on. Uh, appreciate you for staying up late. I guess it's 9 o'clock on your coast, but regardless, appreciate you for making the time for us. Uh, for the people that don't know who you are, would you like to just give everybody a quick synopsis of who you are, what you've done, and let us know a little bit more about you? Yeah, so um, right now I'm at home with my two boys, uh, enjoying life. Before this, <laughs> uh, I've been yeah. footwear designing for many companies, uh, most recently with Nike and Jordan brand. Um, I've worked a few other pretty cool jobs beyond that and realized that the corporate world wasn't for me and struggling right now to make ends meet in a way, but mm-hmm. it's so much more enjoyable of a life, but I can get into further detail as we go along. Yeah, definitely. I guess before we get more into that, how have you been like coping with this like COVID-19 crisis that we're all experiencing? I don't know what it's like on a, I know the West Coast is starting to experience it I, I know it's not as bad as new york but i'm pretty sure it's affecting you pretty much more or less the same how have you been coping with it yeah i mean on the west coast uh well, i have family up the west coast and in washington i'm in a small town that i grew up in and okay. it hasn't really hit here yet we've had maybe 15 recorded cases and personally for the lifestyle we're living right now it it hasn't really affected us because i've kind of set myself up to be self-sufficient from my basement and okay. making things and selling things and not really being much in the public eye. So we've been fortunate in that aspect, but I feel for everybody right now who has been affected by it. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's one of those things where it's, can't explain it. it starts off small, slow, but then it's just drastic. And like, obviously I'm hoping it's not nearly as bad as it is here, as, as it is here, there. Hopefully, you know, the rest of the country could see and use us as an example of what not to do, hopefully. But yeah, it's been pretty bad. I mean, for us on our, on our ends, we've been pretty much locked inside for the past like three weeks. And it's just, it's really, it's really bad. Cause you know, the way it started, you know, they tried to downplay it. And then one day it's like, oh, it's not that bad. Then it's like, it only affects old people. Then they're like, oh, it actually affects everyone. And it's just been a downward, a downward effect. So it's been really depressing, but we're not here to really talk too much about that. That That's really depressing. So let's get into some of the good stuff. Let's uh, talk forget, about, forget let's corona, start man. from day one. So let's, yeah, let's not talk about Corona. It's a Corona free podcast for now, except for the bear. But uh, let's talk about how you got started. Let's talk about like your early childhood life and kind of like maybe stitch to how that got you to where you ultimately got in your early career in terms of like the sneaker designing. Um, I'd say from day one of going to elementary school, I was never a huge uh, socialite, um, but I was always paying attention to everybody's shoes. (laughs) And I, I don't know why I would pay attention to what everybody was wearing what colors they had with it, and just taking mental note for some odd reason. But the <laughs> athletic sneakers definitely caught my attention more than anything. Um, and I'd say it's about third grade or so that there's some kids on the school bus who started wearing Jordans, and this is 1988, 89. So I'm okay. seeing threes, fours, and <laughs> just kind of awestruck at just the design of it as it was. I had no idea what an Air Jordan shoe was, but I was sitting next to these kids and just staring at their shoes, trying to figure out why are these so appealing, you know, (laughs) to my senses. And as I 
asked more questions and realized, oh, these are Michael Jordan shoes. He wears these. Okay, <laughs> I was already playing basketball every day as it was, but now I'm trying to see if I can catch this guy on TV wearing these <laughs> shoes. And when you start seeing a guy playing like that in his prime and then wearing those shoes, I think for most of us or any of us who were was a part of that time generation, it was it was uh, I was awestruck. It, it grabbed me in a way that it it led me to realizing this is something I really want. I never really asked my parents for anything. I had two older brothers. We middle income family growing up, nothing really crazy going on. Um, but I remember going school clothes shopping in the middle of the summer, getting ready for fourth grade. And I saw the Jordan sixes on the shelf. And if I rewind a little bit, I, I do remember going to the youth bowling leagues with my oldest brother. <laughs> and when he was bowling, I would go sit down there with them as a youngster, not bowling, just so I could look at his teammates' shoes because they're switched into their bowling shoes. And meanwhile, <laughs> their shoes were off. So I'm grabbing these guys' shoes and checking out the closer details. And one of these guys had the Air Jordan 6s in the black infrared, just what MJ wore to beat Magic in the finals. And just to see that shoe in person in my hands, I was just studying it and trying to figure out what made this shoe so much cooler than everything else. <laughs> and flash forward to three or four months and I saw the Carmines on the shelf. I just told my mom, I have to have these. I have to have these. <laughs> Granted, I think we got like $40 allowance to get our new school shoes. You know, that <laughs> pair of shoes is to last you the whole school year. School year. <laughs> um, so my mom was just like, no way. So I, I never begged and pleaded for anything quite like this moment in my life. And it's still very memorable to me because it, it transcended a lot of what came. But I remember telling her, I'll do anything for this. And she's just like, you're like $25 short. And I'm thinking $25 <laughs> is a fourth grader in 1990. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Um, so I committed to um, mowing lawns, mowing neighbors' lawns, doing yard work, doing chores around the house for the rest of the summer Sheesh. so that I could wait the next two months for the first day of school. And she's, she agreed to buy them for me. And uh, I remember coming home, my brother seeing that I got those and they crapped their pants, that I had the Jordans and they were rocking their Reeboks and LA Gears. <laughs> <laughs> but that that fourth grade year of being able to put on brand new pair of Jordans and get on the school bus and have all these other kids want to talk to me and look at my shoes and start the conversations that I was usually geeking on them. Now I was the kid with the new Jordans. <laughs> it just opened up doors and just feeling like you're, you know, you're jumping higher when you're playing on the playground too. It just kind of gave you this mental aspect that you were doing something good. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, from there, it, it became a, a bit of a, a love that I, I didn't want to slow down. I couldn't afford to get Jordans. I didn't get another pair for probably three or four more years. And it was the same aspect of working for them to get them. And by the time I was 15 years old, I got a job at the local bowling alley just so I could get a paycheck at 16 years old that I could go spend on Jordan shoes and start <laughs> collecting them. Oh, wow. And to be fair, kids still do that that's to this cool day, story. honestly. It's the same thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ain't nothing changed over there. That's pretty That's pretty cool. So let's walk you. I want to talk a little bit about your basketball, your love for basketball, because I find that really interesting. So let's walk you. Let's walk us through, like, your love for the game. Um, how good were you? And then basically let's walk us through, like, your basketball career for the most part. 
I mean, I played morning till night as often as I could. Growing up in the Northwest, it rains a lot. So yeah. having a driveway for a hoop, um, you're allowed to play on it half the year. So that was great. <laughs> but it wasn't until I got in about fourth grade that I got onto this, what would now be like an AAU circuit of a team that would travel and play other teams in the Portland area. I grew up like 45 minutes outside of Portland was the biggest city. Um, so to be able to start playing against better competition and guys who end up making it big was huge for me as a youngster. Um, my group of guys in my small town were great athletes, and we grew up all playing together. But by the time I got to my senior year in high school, every single one of them quit the team. Wow. It was a coaching thing and just the <laughs> politics of the school, but I yeah. put too much time into it to follow that with them. So I was on a team of guys that were – trying to make the squad and shouldn't have been on the squad. So it gave me a lot of time to have the ball and have fun. Um, I had a fun time with it. But um, What position did you play? Just uh... after, after that, it, it, I was contemplating whether to go play um, basketball after high school or do track. And I think I had better offers to do track, but it was less appealing than continuing to play basketball. So I ended up staying home, um, went to the local junior college and got – my credentials, the math, the Englishes, and all that out of the way, knowing that I wanted to go to a bigger school after that. And I was trying to kind of prep my whole life was about that. So I played two years of JC ball um, and stayed in shape the following year. When I moved to San Jose, I started my um, industrial design career. I knew from a young age, I wanted to design shoes at Nike. And I actually called them when I was about 15 or 16 years old. Wow. And just wanted to know what it would take to get in there. And they suggested about six or seven schools in America that they recruited kids out of after their senior years. And I did my research and found that most of them were out of my parents' budget. Um, mm. But solid schools, Pasadena Art Center, Rhode Island School of Design, Cincinnati, great programs. But I didn't want to be $100,000 in debt coming out of school. And yeah, so I found smart. actually the closest location um, from where I grew up and affordable, a state university, San Jose State University in the Bay Area. It was $1,500 a semester. Wow. 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, was I, was say, was I wish. Yeah. <laughs> something that my parents and I were able to uh, agree to split, which yeah. was easy enough for me to afford as a summer job worker. Um but I played and I stayed in shape after that because it was my first year out of JC ball. So I'm playing with the guys, uh, pickup games, open gyms. And I remember one of my buddies went to the open tryouts. And San Jose State wasn't good. They never really have been that great. They're usually at the bottom yeah. of the division, but it's a division one school. And I remember yep. my buddy went out and made the squad. And I was so surprised thinking I could take this guy every day. <laughs> whether it was one-on-one -on -one or in a team situation so i saw him make that team i actually got really jealous and thought man i should have went out and i could have said that i was a division one basketball player but yeah <laughs> i realized i was at san jose for one reason it was to focus on what i wanted to do for a career and if i was trying to do the schedule of a division one athlete while trying to focus on a career i knew that one trust me it's not fun other. so <laughs> from experience I let it be. you made I the right decision be. yeah <laughs> But I continued to stay in shape. And um, after my first two years at San Jose State, um, I ended up getting my first internship offer. And to even get into your junior year within that program, you had to get an internship under your belt. So wow. I emailed every single shoe company in the world. It's probably 150 emails that I could at least find contacts Sheesh. for. 
on the internet at the time. Wow. And I got one response, one response wow. from every single company. And I was just offering my services for free or if I can join somebody. I didn't care what it was going to be. I just wanted to see what it was like inside the industry and not from the outside. And yeah. that company was K1X or Kix. It was kind of like the, the German and one. one of Germany. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, it was great. I moved over there and the, all the guys there played basketball. It was a great culture of just basketball, art, shoes, design. I was in love. And I went uh, to one of these guys' practices who played in the professional league. And oddly enough, there's a, well, there's an American limit of two players per team in the <laughs> league that he was playing in. Oh, and sense. one of those Americans was a guy from about 30 minutes north of where I grew up. So wow. it was really cool just to connect with somebody in Munich, Germany, and just yeah. kind of hang out in their practice squad and stay in shape. And then they asked me if I wanted to play on their next division down. So it was like minor league. Third, it was called the third league. Like the top two leagues are considered the pro leagues that get paid in third, fourth, fifth, sixth. It just starts going down. So I played in the third league first season, but we played like division three schools that would travel through the country and stuff like that. I had a lot of fun. I had an American coach. I was born and raised in Atlanta, but I didn't speak any German. That's I moved huge. over there um, <laughs> with nothing but two suitcases and no plane ticket back in hopes that I could just wow. stay there as long as I could because the school was always going to be waiting for me. But the opportunity to be designing for a company and seeing the insides of a company while playing basketball. It was, it was a great experience and a wild story on the first day that I got there. Um, they had Ron Artest at the time Ron Artest. and he had just signed on not too long before I got there. And that malice at the palace fight was probably a year and a half or two before this situation. So he's now <laughs> reinstated back into the league. And I remember getting there on my first day. And these guys tell me that we're going to go out and party with Ron tonight. Oh, God. Uh, right? <laughs> we go to this bar, downtown Munich, just a hole in the wall. And I'm, I'm thinking there's like a capacity of about 200 people in this place. It's tiny. And we're starting to get our drinks going. And all of a sudden, Ron Artest comes from behind the bar, jumps on top of the bar. The ceiling's so low that he's like in a squat position, so he's not hitting his head. <laughs> and he starts rapping because at the time he was coming out with uh, one of his records. I, I remember, like, I remember Warrior that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty floored already. And I kid you not, after he gets done with the first song, song two starts and Fat Joe and Terror Squad comes out from the back room of this bar and they get what? up and start singing <laughs> with him. Holy shit. It was the craziest situation. And wow. just seeing that like nobody in this bar really even knew who any of these who the guys hell they were. were. Like me and K1X crew, like 15 to 20 of us were just like having a great time. Everybody else is just like socializing, turned around, not even watching. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> yeah but um from hilarious. that point having that internship under my belt it kind of got me warmed up to knowing that school was teaching me some things but i didn't want to learn how to design toasters or stereos and it was a great to learn the process of uh thinking through design and i learned a lot of what, what i was doing there but i wanted to get into the the industry and so after about eight months in germany moved back home um and then end up going back to San Jose State for a little while before I got my next internship offer, which was through Pony. 
Do you guys remember Pony back in the day? I'm probably too young for yep. Pony to kill, maybe. Yeah, definitely remember Pony. Yeah, they were okay. trying to. Yeah, I remember Pony. He, he's too young for that. I remember Pony. <laughs> <laughs> they had some big athletes uh, a little before my time, too, but like the Reggie Jacksons, and they had Ali for a while. And um, yeah, more football. They end up guys. getting like the kind of athletes who were at the end of their career. Eric Dickerson but was, it was there. Price okay. point stuff, even in their heyday. I remember. Who was that? Uh wait, who Eric was Eric Dickerson was there, right? With Pony? Yeah, 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 he was. Wasn't uh, Eric Dickerson uh, with yeah. Pony? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dickerson was with Pony. We had some great LA Rams ads that we would go through. I remember <laughs> seeing him through I mean, there was so much cool content that that place had uh DNA from when I got there cuz they were pretty dead for about the 10 or 15 years before I got there. So I got brought in as the young college guy who's going to bring some cool or i don't know what to the company they had two guys there um, designing shoes and they had a lot of money getting invested into it to bring it back so it started off as an internship down in san diego so i got to move from bay area down to southern california and i hadn't really been down there much so it was pretty cool to move down there and they had money at this time so this is before the recession this is 07 or so Okay. And they put me up in uh, the Marriott Hotel that matched up to Petco Park where the Padres play. So I could go okay. up to the roof, watch Padres games when I got done with work and get wow. drinks, and I could just bill everything to my room. And they gave me a three-month internship, and I'm about a month into this internship, loving life. <laughs> and I'm flipping channels one night on my TV in my room, and I flip to channel one, and it shows you your bill that I didn't realize it would show you. And my bill was just racked super high. And I felt pretty guilty. Yeah. Like, I want these guys to hire me, but I don't want to run their tab up. Just money. So the next day at work, I come in and I, I tell them what I saw. And I was like, I, I feel bad. I could probably move into a place cheaper if it helps out. And they said, you know, whatever you want to do. So I get on Craigslist. I try to find the most expensive place I could find to rent. And it was still half the price of, you know, 250 bucks a night plus my you know food that i'm putting on my Sheesh. tab so i find this a mansion at the top of the hill some teacher who was traveling and had the, had it open and i had this whole place at the top of the off the top of the hill with this view of san diego and the whole yacht club below for the rest of the summer for the next two months that's sweet and i'm designing shoes <laughs> uh working with athletes wow. and like i'm thinking this is the life right now <laughs> i do not want to go back to school and literally <laughs> that summer ended and i had one semester left to get my degree i'd already done two years of jc i'm now three and a half years into my industrial design degree which is bachelor of science and i told my parents I, I'm going to try to get this as a full-time job. I don't want to go back to school. There's no point in getting a piece of paper that says I graduated because they had offered me the job full-time as soon as that summer was over. Oh, wow. And it was money that I couldn't say no to. And I was like, you know what? Even if this job doesn't turn out, I can go back to school and finish School's up. always going to be there. <laughs> I only went to school to get a job like this, you know, designing athletic shoes. This is great. So I never got that degree. I had one parent that was pissed off, one parent that was rooting for me. <laughs> Um, but I never went back and I never really felt bad about it because working at Pony for the first three years of my real footwear design industry in the career, um, it taught me a shitload of stuff that I would have never got anywhere yeah. else because at a lot of shoe companies, um, there's so many roles 
that you get pigeonholed into doing one thing. You might be the graphics guy. You might be the 3D guy. You might be the marketing guy. With a company that was considered at the time kind of a startup, we had all this amazing DNA. And I'm a vintage sportswear, sports enthusiast through and through. So to be able to dig and find this cool research and bring back these shoes and kind of modernize old classics, I was doing the sales catalogs the graphic design the shoe design the development which is helping factories make shoes um women's children's cleated basketball casual kids every single aspect (laughs) of shoe world i got immersed into and just had to learn and go and learn and go and i loved it i'm the kind of I feel like just for your career long term, that's just great. It's like you dabble into a little bit of everything. You get it. This is great to have in your yeah. in your resume at that too. Oh, it was it was amazing. And just having I, we were getting Randy Moss um, at what? the time for the football side of it. Nice. Um, on the baseball yeah, side, I remember we were Randy getting was Josh Hamilton when he was staying out of wow. trouble and doing good with the Rangers. So it was just a great opportunity to work with Being athletes clean. and try to bring yeah try to bring cool footwear at the time and it wasn't until i went to other companies that i realized uh, <laughs> how little really i had to focus on after that so it was a huge blessing to work so hard at that time for me yeah so from there we're let's uh so from there how long were you there for three years after that how did you ultimately get pit on to jordan how did did they discover you did you discover them how did that application process actually really work that's like a dream job for most people obviously yeah um after so the recession hit and we struggled for a while because most accounts weren't buying what they called new product they stuck to adidas jordan nike and we were making price point 50 dollars stuff that was amazing and i still have some of these samples in the collection just because i think they're cool yeah. Um, but after that ended, we all got laid off. Um, I found a licensing company up in Bel Air and just applied for the job. They hired me right away. And at the time I had a girlfriend that I had just met in San Diego area and we were dating for a few months. And I told her, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take this job, but there was like a two month lull in between getting laid off from pony and getting on with this licensing company. So for those two months, I took all the work that I did at Pony, tried sweetening sweetening up my portfolio and making it look clear, not 3,000 pieces of work, but you know, yeah. here's the sketch, here's the product that came from it, here's the inspiration. Just kind of wanted to put something together so I could actually apply and feel confident applying to an Adidas or to a Nike. I had tried applying to them since I was 16. so. Flash forward every year for the, the prior 10 years, I never heard a word back from them. And granted, I knew there was better designers applying for these jobs than what I was showing them, which is just, you know, my sketches from home and yeah. remastering the stuff that they had already done. They wanted to see a little further thinking. And when I put my portfolio together, I finally got a call to come interview for a job at Nike Basketball. And um, go through the whole process. I'm super excited because to me, it was almost like a ticket back home to the Northwest. It's dream job. Um, the recruiter calls me about two weeks after it and says that I finished second in the running to another guy who's still in that position, Tony Hardman. He's killing it in Nike basketball. Um, but the recruiter told me, he's like, all your work wow. is great, 
and it's all from Pony. Um, we'd love to see like what you would do if you worked at Nike or if you worked at Jordan, because we see what you did for another company and we can't really tell what you would do for us. Yeah. So that two month lull when I, where I was laid off and at my apartment in San Diego, I just did a project that I thought would be fun from home on my floor um, and sent it to him. I never heard a word back from him. <laughs> so I reach out to this company. I take this job in Bel Air. I move out of San Diego up into Santa Monica, and I'm thinking, I wanted to move to Bel Air, but not affordable at all. And yeah. the next closest <laughs> location uh, was Hollywood. I didn't want to live in Hollywood because it's not very affordable either. But Santa Monica yeah. is nice. It's by the beach, and this company was paying me good money. It's the same company that started LA Gear. And the guy, his name's Steven Jackson, he still owns a licensing company called ACI. And it's like all the Velcro shoes you see at Target with cartoons on them. Uh, um, he's got Tommy Bahama, Diodora, the Shack okay, label okay. line. He has like 10 different shoe licenses to do their designs. Um, so I got brought in to kind of be uh, whatever, anywhere that they could find me. And so I'm about a month into this job. And the guy who's given me my project assignments is pretty much just showing me a picture of the new Hyperdunk, the new Hyperfuse, the new Jordan, and says, we need this. And I'll be, okay, <laughs> so you need something like this? No, just if you could like Photoshop that logo off of there, we want something <laughs> like this. Because it was stuff that would go to Payless. Wow. And I was just like, oh man, this is not this is not a job for me. It was paying nearly double of what I was making at Pony. And the workload was about 10% of what I was doing at Pony. But I was wow. not feeling what was going on so they got a new uh a new license halfway into when i was working there and it was for above the rim it was reebok's basketball line from back in the day but they branched it off and they sold it to this guy just to use it because um shack was just retiring and that was one of their biggest lines of basketball shoes at payless was the shack line so without shack okay. playing in the league they wanted to put their name on some other affordable shoes Gotcha. So the above the rim line was given to me, and I got Martel Webster, um, Will Bynum, and there was a third guy, and it was a thirty-five, forty-dollar basketball shoe. So it was a I actually got to do a fun project. I got to work with the athletes. And I was back in my wheelhouse of like, okay, yeah. I could, I could see myself doing this if we can grow this situation. Yeah. Out of the blue, I'm three months into this job. I get a call from Jordan Brand. And they say, we just lost two footwear designers. We're going to be down to four footwear designers. We would like to at least have six on the squad. You're at the top of our list. Like, Whoa, what? Um, Holy shit. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I'm going to put in my two-week notice tomorrow. Uh, the recruiter says, no, it's not going to work for us. We need oh, you wow. to start tomorrow. What? So this they're aggressive the when it comes. When they want you, they want you. Yeah, this is the glimpse <laughs> wow. of how shit works in the big company world in my opinion gotcha. so i told him i live in southern california I'm, I'm not in portland right now i can't start tomorrow <laughs> oh well i've got a guy in japan who says he will be here tomorrow i've got a guy in portland who's going to be here tomorrow i'd call <sighs> you first because you're the first guy on the list but if you're not thinking you can make it we'll just go to the next guy it's like fuck okay oh my no gosh i'll make it <laughs> um it was a wednesday i said give me two days I, w I won't start on thursday or friday but i'll be there monday Gotcha. He's like, ah, okay, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so that week, 
was a crazy week. My girlfriend from San Diego just moved in with me that week. She just got a job in LA that week. She just moved back to be next to her family, which was in Long Beach area. So she was oh, happy. That she, we were moving in together, starting something. I'm thinking I got to go home and have dinner with her and tell her I got to <laughs> leave <news>. tomorrow. <laughs> we just put a big de- down payment on a lease for this place in Santa Monica. And I was oh, just man. sweating bullets. Not to mention when I started at this place, they gave me a nice signing bonus when I started. And uh, to think that I was going to quit the next day, I'm thinking they're going to ask for all this money all back. All of that they're money back. <laughs> fines or something. It's going to be weird. But God had a plan for me, and it, it, it all worked out because um, I told my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, we've been together 13 years, got two kids. Um, nice. She, she was all for it. I just said, I'm going to take this job if you want to come with me. I would love it, but I understand you just moved here back to your family. And she's just like, I'll come with you. Oh, that wow. easy. All right, <laughs> check that first box. Now I got to go in tomorrow <laughs> and resign to this guy who just brought me on and have this momentum going. And thank God the Lakers were playing the Celtics the night before. And the Lakers just beat the Celtics in game seven of the finals. The owner of this wow. brand... Steven Jackson has been a court side season ticket holder for the Lakers for 15, 20 years. Wow. And when I get into his office on my phone, he's in the locker room pouring champagne with Gasol and Kobe and all these guys in the locker room. And I'm just going, Oh God, this is, this is a perfect icebreaker. I'm like, <laughs> I'm happy. That's awesome. Oh, I gotta go. I got, I got this job offer. That's like a dream come true. I got to take it. He's like, Oh, have fun. That's awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> okay. I'll see you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Super lucky, but I had to go home, pack up. Um, it was so fast of a turnaround that they wanted me to start. I end up, well, I guess my wife and I, we end up moving into my brother's house, which was about an hour outside of Beaverton. So Man. for the first month that I worked there, I was commuting an hour there, hour back. And that's not like LA, New York commuting yeah. where an hour is only moving a few miles. That was going far five like... miles away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like but, it's um, actual distance. <laughs> it, it, it was worth it. And I knew at the time I was taking a huge risk too, because the job that they offered me was a three month, they called a ETW position. It's external temporary worker, I think is what it stands for. And it's pretty much like you're on trial, like they can monitor what you're doing. And if you don't do good after those first three months, they then can they lay you off and gotcha. they can wipe their hands clean sort of thing. <laughs> so I was taking quite the risk to leave great money situation in California in hopes that this three month gig would turn into something. Yeah. And um, it turned into that final week, not knowing whether I was going to have a job or not. Um, and just doing kind of petty little jobs for like the senior designers who needed help. And I was cool with it because I was in Jordan and yeah. loving life. <laughs> um, but it turned into another three-month contract. And then it turned into another three-month contract. It's like getting 10-day and contracts in the in, NBA, basically. Like, we're going to do a one-month contract. And we're going to do another one-month contract. And I'm not joking. At the end of each one of these contracts, I'm in the final days of the week going, I don't know if I'm going to be coming back Monday because no one said a word to me. Oh, my gosh. This place works. Okay, this is crazy. I'm finally a year into it as a temporary worker. And they finally, as they say, got budget. (laughs) Of course. Funny because of how many millions that place makes. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What's crazy to me is, 
coming from that licensing company, there was five or six, seven footwear designers. When I was at Pony, we had six or seven footwear designers, yeah. small companies. At Jordan Brand, for the most most of the time I worked there, we had five footwear designers doing everything. <laughs> and it's crazy because that's a $2 billion place. Yeah. And the footwear designers are the ones that are making the product come to life while everybody else is kind of giving their two cents and kind of waiting and kind of <laughs> trying to help out. But uh, it was crazy how much work there was to be done compared to these other companies. As I, I kind of thought going into there that there's going to be a team of 10 or 20. Everybody yeah. Be in this well-oiled machine. Uh, One would think really. <laughs> <laughs> that's insane. Absolutely insane. So let's, uh, so let's talk about, so when you're there, what I'd like to talk about is over the years, I know Nike's always came up with a lot of different innovations. I, I remember, I don't know how much of like the performance footwear you may have worked on or observed but i remember like i'm a big runner like i used to run track my whole life through high school college so i remember nike used to always be at the forefront of like big innovations so how much of that stuff was really for show and how much of it would you say it was actually like performance based like i think a good example for me would be like flywire for example like how much of that actually was like beneficial you would say towards the athletes um it's all bullshit. Yeah. I'm, I'm one person and I'm one person's opinion. Um, <laughs> yeah. Flywire, for example, if you remember when they tried to launch it, it was supposed to be what they called loose magwire, which is what they later did. Yeah. Um, when it first launched, it was the 2012 <laughs> Olympics and they put it on the Hyperdunk. Okay. Yep. I remember. it well enough to figure out that it would work or not. So they <laughs> encapsulated it with two sheets of plastic that sandwiched those wires but if you took the wires out of those two sheets of plastic, the shoe performed as good without them. They were okay. just trying to showcase the whole idea of FlyWire was to have an upper technology because they had all these technologies under the foot. They wanted to market something that was going to be above. Gotcha. And I remember just thinking, like, what a bunch of shit that you guys are going to just sandwich <laughs> two pieces of plastic and glue in between <laughs> what's essentially a really thin, like, you know, fishing wire. It's a really strong yeah. wire. Um but that against your foot alone still needs to be protected. And the amount of protection that they would put on shoes around the technology completely bumped the benefits of it working, in my opinion. And Interesting. I, I've, I, I say this with like a chip on my shoulder because there is so much tech that, um, first of all, at Jordan Brand, you didn't get the opportunity to see or use a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Nike. We were always second in line and we didn't have a dedicated team that focused on new tech or innovation. It was always wait for Nike to introduce a flywire, introduce a new airbag, and then you kind of have to adopt it like two years later at Jordan Brand. Um, and for me as a designer, I saw this stuff and it, it ate at me because there was <laughs> a big piece of me that got into Nike that I haven't mentioned yet was that I was, I had the design side, the drawings, uh, the knowledge of footwear from, you know, being able to do every one of those aspects at Pony. Um, but for me, I, I wanted to be, I wanted to have a shot of getting into Nike when I was in college. And I knew that one of the internships that I wanted to try to tackle on one of my summers off after my first year there was to understand the foot and the ankle and the biomechanics of how athletes work. So I found um, an amazing podiatrist in the Portland area and I asked him 
if I could just hang out with him for the summer and come in and see patients with him just to understand, knowing that I'm designing shoes, I'm designing foot coverings. Yeah. I want to see what athletes are experiencing when they do have problems so I can solve these problems. I'm coming from school where that's really what you're trying to learn. You're trying to solve a problem and that's yeah. an industrial designer. There's the reason of why you're designing a product rather than design something that looks cool and then try to market the hell out of it, which is what I saw a lot of out of Nike. I had this mentality of wanting to solve problems still. And coming into Nike or coming into Jordan brand, there was none of that going on. I would, I would do a lot of footwear sketches and problem solving and trying to help uh, minimize weight and trying to get uh, better shapes. Uh, the last is what we refer to as, you know, what you wrap the material over that kind of shapes the shoe. Mm -hmm. um, I would go in there and try to change some of these foot last shapes. And it was just like the absolute no, no, you don't, you don't touch that stuff because at Jordan brand, this is history. And these shoes have sold so well. If don't break something that's not broken, not you don't broken. change the stuff. And then I'd start showing them, you know, what, what people who don't have that foot shape have to deal with because for the most part, Jordan's three through, I'll say three through 14, like the meat and bones of, you know, retro Jordans, they were all made for the most part on the same last. So every one of them has the same toe shape, the same heel spring, the same everything other than a different material combination wrapped over it. Gotcha. And I didn't realize this growing up, but I wore, as I started collecting more shoes, I wore my shoes from morning till night because I love yeah. my shoes, I love my Jordans. So I'd wake up, put them on, not till the end of the day, I'd take them off. When I got to this podiatrist's office, I learned stuff that blew my mind and is now influencing what I do today and why I quit that place. Um, he was a world-class runner in his 20s, and he broke down and started getting injured hips, injured knees, and couldn't really do what he was doing. And he was seeing guys into their 30s, you know, still getting better and wondering, like, why is my body breaking down? And he started seeing the Kenyans yeah. killing it in all these marathons and said, I'm going to move to Kenya. I'm going to train with the best runners in the world and see why they're doing so good. Yeah. And for the most part, what he took from that was they trained barefoot. Yep. On race day, they would put a pair of shoes on, but because they had trained barefoot for so long, the muscles in their calves, the, the stretch that their Achilles and everything gets, the anatomy that our body has is ready for race day when you put a pair of shoes on because the body's built for that. Uh, when we wear shoes all day and work out in shoes that have a one inch lift in our heel, um, pinch our toes together because of that beautiful rounded toe shape that nobody really has. Nobody actually has. It yep. <laughs> has serious problems that I didn't think about until I worked with this podiatrist. And I would see these runners who would come in and they would say, my knee hurts, my hip hurts, my back hurts. It'd be somewhere up the chain. And they'd just say, you know, I haven't changed anything. I haven't done anything. And the first thing he'd do is he'd say, take your shoes off. He'd look at their toes and their feet and he'd instantly go, yep, we have a problem here. You're running in shoes that are doing this to you. And he would try to stretch the toe box out of their shoes. He'd get them in something a little bit lower to the ground and not on you know, like a big Air Max bubble that's bouncing you off. There's, there's something about putting too much cushioning in a shoe that your body now relies on that cushioning. 
Yeah. And you use less muscles because of that. And when we do that and then go on a long run and you compound that years after years, somewhere along the chain, your feet might be able to adjust to those shapes of the shoes, but your knee's not going to like it, your back, whatever it's going to be. And I saw him just telling people, you know, go barefoot a little bit more. He would send them home with a toe spacer to get their toes spread back out. And they, each one of these patients would come back within a month or two. And every single one of them said, that hip pain's gone. That knee pain's gone. I'm running the best I've ran in five, 10 years. And it was eye-opening, super eye-opening. And this was 15 years ago. Um, it influenced me so much. And by the time I got to Jordan Brand, um, I was sketching a ton on trying to solve problems that mm. were going to help athletes. I wasn't trying to change the way we look at footwear. I was trying to just add something that was going to make us think differently, like maybe a training shoe that was shaped a little bit better for our feet or something like that. Yeah. It was just no, no, no one's going to buy that. And the people who make decisions at what shoes go forward had nowhere near the similar mindset that I had coming into this. So me as a designer um, would have to convince the marketing guy, the development master, all these guys that had been there for 20 years longer than I had. Yeah, I see. And that's kind so of annoying because it's bosses, like it marginalizes like your ideas almost to some to some extent. It does. And I, I found that at Jordan Brand, I was taking uh, prescriptive marketing briefs that were pretty much already figured out by people before it even got to me. It would be uh -huh. like, hey, uh, Foot Action needs $120 shoes that kind of resembles retro stuff from the 90s and it needs to have leather and needs to have. And I'd get like, you know, eight prescriptions of what it needs. So it's pretty much like they already figured out what they need. And as a designer and wanting to be creative and bleeding the brand and MJ, I mean, growing up as a kid, I had every MJ poster in my bedroom surrounding. So, I mean, I've been studying shoes and this brand for 15, 20 years, little did they probably even realize. And so I was always trying to add something different than what specifically they were asking for because their requests would come directly from Foot Action saying, hey, we could use another $120 shoe that looks like the Jordan 3 or the Jordan 11 because that shoe sells really well, but it sells <laughs> out quick. Okay, well, I see your guys' opportunity for business, but can we expand on that? And it just became arguments all the time. And I, I when I found out that it was just easier to kind of do what was asked for versus try to offer more and more, um, it finally had a boss within Jordan brand. And that was another thing. It was a revolving door at that place. I think I went through six bosses um, the six years that I was there, but I had mm. one amazing boss, Jason Maiden. Um, shout out to Jason. He's one of my best mentors. He mentioned to me to just go down to the Nike innovation kitchen, um, and show them some of my thinking, some of my problem solving, some of my sketches. He's like, those are the guys that would probably respect this stuff and listen to you more so than the team here. So I take that portfolio of work. Uh, I reach out to Jay Mester, who is the director of innovation footwear for Nike. I'm not sure if he still is, but this was uh, five years ago. And um, he's actually the guy that invented Flywire wow. <laughs> at Nike. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I show him my portfolio of work, and I could see the excitement that he's like, you're in Jordan Brand, and you're doing stuff like this. Um, he's like, do you mind if I have you present this stuff to the whole team down here? 
I'm going, yeah, I'd love to. This is kind of what I would rather be doing is, you know, thinking about the athlete as a former athlete. Um, I'm still playing basketball there at Nike and they've got a super competitive league on campus there. I mean, there's like 8,000 people that work there. And you think about how many former athletes that work at Nike. Yeah. Uh, the team I played on for the first four years there, our starting five was all former division one wow. athletes from like university of Oregon, university of Cincinnati. That's dope. <laughs> uh, so I'm coming off the bench to play with them, but I'm having a great time. Um, the injuries I started getting now in my young thirties started really making me realize that I need to start taking these Jordans off my feet a little <laughs> bit more frequently and letting my toes breathe and letting my feet stretch out. And when I started doing that, I started feeling better, to be honest with you. Like I'd kick my shoes off at work and uh, I'd get people telling me, you know, what are you taking your shoes off for? Come on. And I was like, why am I wearing a hot, sweaty shoe all day when I'm sitting behind a computer? Yeah. <laughs> and I started wearing Chuck Taylors into work because Nike owned Converse, so that was okay. Yeah. And then people would give me shit because I wasn't wearing my cool retros into work anymore. But I'm like, but my feet are breathing and they're a little more comfy right now. But okay. <laughs> so it led me to designing a shoe that did end up releasing. It was the Jordan 1 um, Deconstruct, I think is what it's called, or Decon. It's yeah. pretty much like a Chuck Taylor meets Jordan 1. And that shoe project started because I went down the innovation kitchen. And when I showed them my thinking, he's like, I'm going to have you present to the rest of these guys. And I did that. And it, the people I got to present to was uh, engineers, people who were working at NASA. Uh, wow. Long vets that had been in there uh, a long time, like Eric Avar and Aaron Cooper, guys who had been doing signature line stuff for a long time. So that was a bit nerve wracking, but yeah, I, I could done see. about a half hour presentation and field a few questions and get the like nods of approval from a lot of people meetings over and Jay walks me back out to the floor and in the innovation kitchen at Nike, um, there's designers kind of all in one section and then a little further back, there's a lot of equipment so you can make shoes right on the spot there at the very front of that whole space is what they called at the time they call it the zoo. Okay. Uh, stood for special other operations. And it's kind of like the place where the legends got to retire and work into like Avar Cooper. And at the head of that space was Tinker and uh, Mark Smith. And when I get done with this presentation, he clears off a table right next to these guys and says, like, this is your new workspace. You're working here right now. Oh, wow. So <laughs> to me, like getting the spot at Jordan brand was like the dream come true. But to have that situation just kind of land in my lap after like what I was more truly passionate about was a dream come true even more so because now I have access um, to make shoes right on the spot. I don't have to wait for a factory to screw shit up and yeah. then send a revision and wait three months and then send another revision and wait a few months. I can make stuff right here and solve some problems. And it was super exciting. So one of the first projects I did, because I'm still a full-time employee at Jordan Brand, um, it was when I got free time, I had my own space to come down there and play and work and solve problems. Yeah. So they gave me access to everything. They showed me everything they were working on for the next five to 10 years going forward and said, you know, like include your thinking into what we're doing and start running with this. So I made that Jordan one decon. I took an old military bag cause I'm just a vintage collector of shit. And so I brought this bag in, had it cut up and just made like a Chuck Taylor slash air Jordan one. And it was great. So, I now realize that my job can be made way easier if I present the team with an idea versus waiting for one. 
but I'm now kind of at the end of my Jordan brand career anyways, but I, I figured that out a little too late. <laughs> yeah, as in most things um, in life. <laughs> yeah, but the time that I got in the kitchen was was awesome. I was starting to make footwear um, specifically now for my feet, and I'm trying to solve problems of being an athlete who's trying to adjust out of wearing the Jordans all day and be stronger faster and i got to look at high speed camera work um, cutting angles at slow motion and what kind of shoes work better than others um, the access to tools that you have is amazing um, yeah. but it was eye-opening in another aspect too because i got to see world-class athletes in their feet and this world's world-class athletes feet are fucked up yeah they're, definitely they're bad they're very good. you should see the, they have like uh, molded shapes of all their feet so that when they want to make a custom pair of shoes for a track sprinter or a LeBron James, they can wrap material right over that gotcha. person's foot shape, essentially. Um, those people's foot shapes have been deformed to look like the way that they mass produce shoes, which is oh. a tightly pointed, rounded toe. Oh, no. And when it gets bad, your toes start crossing over. It's called hammer toes. Yeah. Ugh. And it can get ugly. And yeah. there are some gnarly feet in this world. And a part of my presentation when I pitched to the Innovation Kitchen of, of why I think I could help out was that their billion-dollar man, LeBron James, has some of the most screwed-up feet you've ever seen. <laughs> and they could help him. And that's that's where my my problem within this company kind of started to surface was you guys have every tool in the world to help this guy yeah. be strong and for the game. If you look at the guy's feet, you would never have thought this guy is a world-class athlete. And he's been wearing Nikes for however long. Yeah. I don't know how bad his feet were when he was in high school. Um, but it's all attributed to what they put him in. And the reason why... I think LeBron's shoes are way overbuilt. They end up putting too much carbon fiber and extra air bubbles. And yeah, they do the most with all of those. protect him. <laughs> and the more you put Band-Aids under people's feet and around their feet to protect them, the weaker their feet get. And that's when you start seeing the coaches that roam the sidelines in the NBA today, like the Kevin McHale's or whatever, who can like barely walk because they were playing in <laughs> shitty shoes too. And when you do that for long enough, your body will you up. catch up and you, your body will shut down. And because you've been putting your foot in the wrong position, every step you take and every time you jump in the amount of pressure you put on your feet from dunking and then landing from 10 feet off the ground, Ugh. it adds up. And when these guys play 82 games a year, that takes a toll. Yeah, over years. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so, in like a kind of relative story, I'm still very close friends with Ray McClanahan, who's the podiatrist in Portland area. And they would call him in the innovation kitchen would call him in to say, hey, we know you're kind of like the foot expert around here and you work with world-class athletes. Could you come look at this guy's feet and tell us what you think? And I won't name a name, but there was a pretty world-class level athlete in the NFL that they had to come in and get on a treadmill and do some slow motion video. And, and they bring Ray in more as just, we need your opinion. 
Mm-hmm. He's not working for Nike, but he's he's got so much experience in this that he kind of will lend a hand. And he just flat out said, if you got your feet a little bit more splayed out and you got lower here and you didn't wear that cleat and that shoe, you would perform at better levels and you wouldn't have that pain that you're getting on your foot. Um, oh, hold on. No worries. Pulled my cord out. You still hear me? Yeah, you're good. Yeah. So after this meeting, um, they pretty much tell the, the athletes hearing all this. <laughs> and the athletes leaving the meeting being like, I don't want to wear Nike cleats anymore. Now that I've heard that and I see that firsthand what that's doing to me, he's like, I have a huge contract with you guys, but <laughs> I'm not trying to ruin my career. <laughs> yeah. And that's one instance, one story, one athlete, one situation. You should see people like Troy Polamalu's feet. I mean, people who have a wide foot base, and then you hand them the same cleat that everybody else is wearing, and you're expecting this big, wide toe base to squeeze into the same shape. Ugh. I mean, think about think about a size 9 shoe of a tall, skinny kid like myself that I could get into when I'm younger. It didn't affect me too much. But think about the same kid who might be like 300 pounds or the adult who's 300 pounds and has a super wide foot. But because the length of his foot is only a size 9, he's buying the same shoe and squeezing into the same shoe as I am. Your foot starts to deform slowly into the shape of that shoe that you've tied your foot into and corseted into every day. That's insane. And when I started making shoes for myself and trying to show this process of trying to help athletes get stronger, because to me, I'm seeing all these athletes who have bad feet, but they're world-class athletes above their ankles. I want, I want athletes to be strong in their feet too. And I work for the biggest shoe company in the world Yeah. who has access to make these athletes better. And I was putting shoes onto the people in the innovation kitchen that I was hand making and getting the word back from them of this is like one of the most comfortable shoes I've ever worn. Wow. I'd be like, awesome. I'm doing That's what job. you want. Yeah. I feel like I'm making stuff happen. But then the next sentence would be, um, but we're going to focus on the next Zoom airbag and we're going to focus over here on this next technology. So, okay. Uh. <laughs> I, then, I then really started to realize even within the Nike Innovation Kitchen, it's a business. It's a business, and, and that's what it all comes down to. How are they going to innovate a new tech that can be marketed, that make can be more money. put into a running shoe, put into a basketball shoe? And what I was doing was, to me, the pinnacle of what Nike Innovation should be doing, which was solving problems for athletes to make them stronger, better, faster. And I thought I had made it into the kitchen. I'm finally where I belong because this is yeah. my mentality. Uh, being so close with Dr. Ray and having this passion for shoes that I've had in my whole life, it blew my mind when it wasn't really, it didn't really blow my mind. I, I saw it firsthand Jordan Brand. When I saw it in the Innovation Kitchen that this isn't what their focus is either, but. It, it just kind of reassured you like, money. this is what I the see, business I, is. I see this well-oiled machine and what it's about. And yeah. so there was this, there was this time where I, I, all of a sudden, had to go in to get my knee scoped. I've been playing basketball now, and I was about 33 at the time, all the way up until when I was 33. And I go in to get my knee scoped, and they, they said, we're just going to clean it up. I had a lot of pain just, like, getting up and down stairs for a while. And he's like, there's a small chance we'll do more work once we get in there, but we won't really know. 
So I go in there, I wake up from surgery, and he removed all the cartilage out of my left knee. I was a high jumper, long jumper, triple jumper, okay. basketball player, and I always jumped off my left leg. So it just took a beating. And I realized years. when you have your foot in the wrong position, even by a few millimeters, but you compound that with all that jumping and all that time, it wore the cartilage out of my left knee so bad that he's like, uh, you didn't have anything to keep it. Oh, God. So he removes it. <laughs> And gives me micro fracture, micro micro fracture surgery, pretty much what ended Greg Oden's career in Portland. Um, and for those who don't know, I didn't know at the time, they drill a bunch of holes in the bone of your knee, and that sends all the white blood cells back down to your knee. And then when it recognizes that there's no cartilage down there, you regrow brand new cartilage. Um, but you go home with a machine that bends your leg for you in slow motion. Oh, God. Like every two minutes is a repetition so that while the cartilage is growing, it's growing back evenly. Yeah. So I had to go home and sit on the floor for two months. Oh, my God. <laughs> while my cartilage grew back. I had no idea this was going on. I'm like at the pinnacle of my design career in the Nike Innovation Kitchen. I had no idea this was going to happen. And I'm now at home and I have nothing to do but sit on the floor. And it was it was, I was depressed. Uh, my mom had just passed away at that same time. Um, I then just like realized that I won't be playing basketball anymore. And that was like the biggest passion I had and the only outlet I had away from a job that wasn't so much fun as it used to be at this time in my life. It was now a job because I had to just answer to marketing people at Jordan brand to get my projects done. And being able to go to a gym, which was one of the coolest perks about Nike, is there's basketball gyms there. and you can, It was a great outlet to just go do that when you wanted to let off steam or go work out and think, well, I'm sitting on the floor. I don't have that outlet anymore. I've lost my mom. I don't want to really go back to Jordan brand right now. Man, <laughs> um, as a side story to all this, I've been a thrifter slash garage seller my whole life. And I've just hoarded a bunch of cool stuff forever <laughs> just because it's a hobby and it was my job to make money on the side. Um, I bought this old steamer trunk that was like 100 years old. So while I sat on the floor for two months, I hand-painted the whole Louis Vuitton monogram, tiny to scale, on this giant box <laughs> for about a month and a half. <laughs> That's what I did to keep uh, my sanity is trying to do something. But um yeah, I got done with yeah. this machine after two months of my health leave work of absence, and I go back into work, and I got a new boss that I wasn't feeling at yeah. Jordan Brand, and I go to my desk in the innovation kitchen, and all my stuff is gone, and I'm seeing my jacket being lasered in the laser room. I'm seeing my coffee mug being drunk by someone else. Oh, um, no. <laughs> all my shit was just spread out, and I was just super frustrated, like... I'm not one to voice things or go off on anybody, but I went and talked to, you know, my manager in there and just saying like, what's going on? I, I was emailing you and never heard back. And now it's like I never existed and all my stuff just got taken. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Oh, okay. Wasn't really any conversation other than that. So that was the final straw. I, I was at this point where I was <laughs> like, okay, you know what? I came home, told my wife, this was my dream job. Um, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> And it was that easy. 
for her, and she's she's my ride or die. She she ended up getting into Nike too after about a year when I was there, just at a low level like customer service kind of position. She climbed the ranks for the next five years in that place where she was um, doing promo apparel for some um, cool events that would come about that Nike would put on. So she was she was actually loving the job. And when I told her I don't want to do this anymore, I just. <laughs> I went in the next day and I just packed my boxes. Like to, when it's not in your heart anymore. Yeah, it's just, um, it's I not the same. Dragging it out. Yeah. And I respect so I that. I respect that. And I just said I I I got better things to do in this life, and it's I don't know what it is right now, um, but I got something better to do. And so this was three years ago that I just shook people's hands and said, you know, good luck. I'll see what see you guys on the flip side. <laughs> and I think from that point on, my life has gotten so much better because of now what I get to focus on. And it took me a little bit to figure that out. Um, we moved back down to Southern California to be by her parents because we had just had a kid. And that was also added into this whole decision of coming home at 5.30, 6.30, Monday through Friday. And then by the time you get your kid from daycare, and cook dinner time to go to bed so really like monday through friday i had no time with my boy and it was eating me up a little bit so we moved down there to have him close to her family yeah and i took a job with um, this artist named blaine halverson and he has a company called made worn and it's right in hollywood up the street from where all the Hype Beasts, uh, Supreme Store, mm-hmm. Round Two stores are all, and he has this compound that's kind of hidden and only open on private occasions. And he was just making a lot of like rock shirts, and I had a lot of love for vintage clothing that I never really tapped into. I just collected it forever. Yeah. And so now I got to see how he was hustling in LA to make vintage apparel come to life, and he had the most ridiculous, you know, collection of T-shirts, and I saw him trying to recreate vintage tees with like hand sanding the graphics and hand making the t-shirts and that to me was the love i had at the nike innovation kitchen of getting my hands busy and not sitting behind a computer yeah um and to be able to get my hands dirty again is what i loved about that place i was only there for about four months and then i ran into the former head of pony okay uh who's at a trade show and he had just bought Mitchell and Ness from wow. Adidas. Adidas owned it for about 10 years. Okay, yeah, he had just bought it from them. And I said, oh, man, I'd rather be designing, you know, vintage sports oil. Yeah. Right now. now that I've got <laughs> a little bit of experience in the apparel world, I've been shoe designing for the last 12 years. Um, Do you think I can come work for you over at Mitchell and Ness? I was like, yeah, we'd love you. We remember you used to wear all the vintage jerseys in the work. We think you'd fit in here. You're, you're a good guy. So I go in there as a, a designer was the only like label I had because they didn't know what they were going to do with me. <laughs> and I started getting these projects already. And I was just like, what are you guys doing? I don't, I didn't, I didn't see a strategy behind a lot of it. It was just like, you know, let's release something because it hasn't been released in a while. And then I'm coming from this well-oiled machine that I, I learned a lot from Nike. I'm not going to harp on them too much. I learned a shitload about a lot. Yeah, And one thing was how businesses can be run well to make profit and money. And so I saw the opportunity to present an idea of, hey, why don't we design something with 
a story behind it and a reason to release it and you know a date that surrounds it and have a, a marketing plan behind it and it was something that they weren't doing at all so i pitched this to this big group at a sales meeting and it went over super well and how to start collaborating with other brands a little bit more and i went from designer basic designer to creative director of the brand label um and I thought that was awesome. I was going to get a new, you know, new title. You just get uh, full creative paycheck. freedom, I feel yeah. like, which yeah, is like the key thing. It it wasn't like that. Not in the beginning. <laughs> it became the 50 to 100 emails a day uh, me for answers and trying to, um, there's like a whole European division trying to deal with. While I'm trying to design products, that was more where my heart was. The position I was in now was to more manage people and run the business people. side of things, which is like that that's not what you I didn't want. want that. Yeah, I didn't want that back either. So I'm in this position now for like three more months, <laughs> and my wife sees the frustration that I have because I'm coming home later than I was in my Nike days. Oh no! And we lived in Long Beach area, and this was in Irvine, so it was like an hour drive there, hour drive there. Ugh. I'm getting home at like 7.30 or 8 o'clock now. And she just suggests, hey, you want to move back up to the Northwest and like that small hometown you grew up in? And I was just like, yes. Fuck if you, it. If you're <laughs> saying that, because she grew up in Long Beach and went to school uh, in New York. So she only knew big city life from you know Portland to LA to New York. And for her to suggest that, because she had visited my family in my small town. I was the only one that got out of my town. Really. Okay. Um, I was like, yes, I'll quit this job right now because I'd rather <laughs> be doing this, yeah. doing something else, not this. And so that was uh, about two years ago. And for what you can sell a house for in Long Beach area compared to what you can buy in small town Washington, uh, it's completely different. So we're able to now have a giant backyard um, designing a indoor basketball court that we're going to put into our outside for our kids to have to play and grow up in that's going to be dope to have yeah a place for me and my kids to have and not have to wait for six months of rain to stop before yeah. we can go play some basketball outside um and the house that's big enough to house uh, my inventory i i told my wife i mean she made a suggestion but really we didn't have there's not really job opportunities for us in this town um but i told her that i've hoarded enough cool shit over the last 20 years and let's talk and about that for these people years. for people that don't know let's talk about your site and the your, your vintage apparel let's talk about it so for wh- where can they find that at first and foremost drfunks.com spelled out d-o-c-t-o-r-f-u-n-k-s.com and um, i checked out the site it's a lot of my dope eBay, shit my ebay username um oh wow years ago that's when eBay was like a, a thing. <laughs> like I said, I wasn't getting the money to buy the shoes I wanted. And when I went to a local thrift store in our small town and my brother and I found some Barry Sanders uh, Zoom Turf trainers. Wow. It wasn't either one of our sizes, but they were brand new and they were 15 bucks. And we just said, let's just Fuck split it. them. And I don't know what we're going to do with them, but you know, we were into baseball cards before that. So we were just like collectibles. Yeah. Collectible. Yeah. Then we just thought they were collectibles. My dad introduces us to eBay in like 1998. And we just throw them up there and they end up selling for like 50 bucks. And it was like light bulb turned on of, oh, we can go to a thrift store, find some cool shit, make some profit. 
But I mean, in my local little hometown, I think not too long after I found some Reggie Miller, Game Worn, Player Exclusive, Air Max of Tempos, like wow. 31 stitched on them. And I knew enough about shoes. This is before, you know, the internet was showing pictures of what all the players were wearing. But I knew just from looking at like Slam Magazine, what these guys were wearing. And I'd zoom in on the pictures and see the little details that weren't on the retail versions. Wow. I found a pair of these that were grass stained and dirty for five bucks at the thrift store. Um, put them on eBay, got, I think, like $300 for them. Wow. And it was more of a light bulb for us. I was like, <laughs> we can do this. My brother at the time was like uh, 18, 19. I'm probably 14, 15. So he takes a trip to Portland. That's about 45 minutes from where we live. Comes back and shows me two bags from the Goodwill. And we, I'm like, what are you doing? Check out what I found. <laughs> Air Jordans. Oh, shit. Some cool jackets. <laughs> He's like, this is all like five bucks each. I'm like, well, holy shit. <laughs> Struck gold. So, how old is this? Um, to be able to put an ad on eBay, we had to take pictures of it with a camera with film. Wow. Take that film to a local drugstore to get developed. <laughs> developed. <laughs> Wait a day for the pictures to get developed. When we got the pictures back, we'd have to scan them in on a scanner that took about a minute to scan each photo. Um, <laughs> But, wow. you know, I think in those first few weeks, he made a couple hundred dollars real quick. So he quit his job as a janitor just doing the local drugstore cleaning and went full time thrifting, eBaying for about eight years wow. and thrived. Um, I saw this opportunity and I joined him on some of these trips and it wasn't my full time income. So I was focused on playing basketball and going to school. But when I moved to San Jose and I had to pay half my tuition, that's exactly how I did it. Wow. I went to thrift stores on Saturdays. Um, I took a bike that I got from the thrift store. I grew up learning how to hustle cheap. And I figured out the, the bus route that would kind of get me to a few other stores. I got two or three backpacks and I'd come home, <laughs> wash it in the dorm room <laughs> laundry, <Wow. laughs> uh, list my auctions on a Sunday. And then you don't have to work Monday through Friday. And I was making a couple hundred bucks and I started teaching other people within the dorm rooms what I was doing for their own personal taste. I was doing vintage clothing, sportswear, Nike shoes and shit. Um, but while I was doing this, I always kept the stuff to the side that I appreciated. So if I went on a trip when I was 15 years old with my brother and he got, you know, the Tommy Hilfiger Parker to sell resell for hundred bucks, if I found a cool Jordan t-shirt, um, that would only resell for like $15 or 10 bucks at the time on eBay, I would just put it in a box and keep it. Well, doing that for 20 years, I, I collected a lot of stuff. <laughs> And it was just stuff I always appreciated. And because I always got it for so cheap, it never really hurt my wallet. I just kept buying one piece a week, couple pieces a week. Stashing Even when it. I worked at Nike, I, I would drive by a Goodwill on my way home. I'd still hit the Goodwills there because all the employees who would bring home free shoes and samples and the stuff that didn't get released, they would throw them to the Goodwill. Wow. So I got known at Jordan Brand as like the garbage collector because <laughs> there was always a box <laughs> in the office at the end of the day that was just to go to shred. And so anytime anybody didn't want anything, they put it in this box. And if you wanted to take it, you took it. If you didn't, it gets shredded. Wow. I would bring home a pair of shoes maybe a week, but, you know, for six years. That adds shoes. up. But I had <laughs> a ton before that already. Um, so, yeah, when I kind of had the word from my wife that we can just leave, her parents weren't super helpful at that time to where we, it was really convincing us to stay in Long Beach. So we thought maybe we had a different opportunity to be around my brothers. So that brother who was doing the thrifting, he uh, 
he bought a bowling alley with my other brother. And so all of a sudden, cold turkey, he quit doing it. But he had literally thousands of cool pieces that he just wasn't selling anymore. So we moved back, and I told her I can get everything out of storage. If we buy a big enough house, I can kind of get everything out of storage, start opening boxes. And because of just a skill set of knowing how to do photography, how to do Photoshop, and how to kind of market myself, I can make all I sell is through Instagram. If I put a cool picture on Instagram, if anything, link it right to the store. That's the only way I've ever advertised the store is just through, through Instagram. Instagram and social and media. I'm not big. Um, I think I'm not even at 4,000 followers, but the people who do follow me, I think see what I do post, which is, you know, rare sample Jordan shoes or unique vintage stuff that I collected 20 years ago. That's just been in boxes. And the crazy thing is, is since this COVID-19 has come up, I think it's got most people sitting at home shopping. Yeah. Yeah. My mentality. I'm right guilty now of is, it too. Unfortunately, <laughs> I can't lie. <laughs> I'm very guilty. I'm trying of to think like, how do we conserve at this time, knowing that there might not be toilet paper tomorrow at the grocery store, yeah. or we're not going to have enough money to buy food. And I'm seeing sales jump through the roof since this virus has come through. And I've realized it's people sitting at home and there's a lot of, fans who like what I do, but you know, if you're still getting a paycheck through unemployment or through your employer and you can't go to a sports game or you can't go to a bowling alley and you're one of these, you know, guys who wants to have an outlet, you're, you're just collecting paychecks in my opinion. And yeah. maybe that's why I'm getting these sales. Cause they we have, have nothing else to spend our money, money on right now. And I, I'm not going to lie. I looked at your site and I'm already like scheming on a couple of things. So I'm up next, but <laughs> it, it's just at this point, there's nothing else to buy in life. And I'm just like, yo, this shit is awesome. And it's like, if we're going to die, I'd rather die knowing I had this in my man cave. So definitely <laughs> great, great inventory. I advise all my listeners to check it out. Cause it's some dope shit. Yeah, there. I mean, there's only like, I think I have like, 800 to a thousand somewhere in that on the site right now, but I've only gone through 15% of the inventory that I do have. And my brother lives down the street from me. And I told you that he just kind of quit cold Turkey doing this. So he's got even more inventory um, from the last 25 years than I do. So if I say like, Hey, I'm going to put out some uh, Jason kid shoes because I found two pairs in a box from 20 years ago. I'll go to his house and find two or three more, and then I can put five up and make it look like this really cool listing, and then it drives people right to my store. It's it's been great so far, because the beauty of all of this is I appreciate this stuff, but it's allowed me now the time to figure out life um, from my basement, and that is how to make the products that I've always wanted without having to rely on a big company and worse yet to rely on China or any other foreign country to make the product that I've wanted. I had a lot of problems dealing with uh, foreign countries. Yeah. Tell me about that. Cause I can imagine like sometimes things don't come back as you should. The quality isn't always there. Right. And never does. And there's reason for that. Nike uh, as a prime example um, and most companies don't own the factories. Uh, and so if you send out this technical package that I would spend literally a month on in describing every millimeter of detail of how thick the rubber is here and how this seam should be overlapped, uh, you think you're going to get back the perfect shoe that you envisioned. Oh. It comes back as a piece of slop every time uh, because they can charge 
Nike and say, ah, you didn't like that one? We'll have to do another round of sampling. Oh, uh, we'll have to open up another mold for that. Uh, and so they get to charge more. If they got it perfect on the first try, they, um, yes. then they would be able to go right to production. Gotcha. And going to production is where they can make profit. But the sampling process is what's ridiculous because we would work 18 months ahead of schedule at Jordan Brand to get product to shelf. From the time I would get a product brief to start it, it wouldn't hit shelves for 18 months. That's and insane. The first year of that whole process is waiting for factories to make the sample wow. as good as you intended it to. And the shit side of that, I'd say from a designer, is you get these crap samples back in the first round, first two rounds, and you're showing this beautiful rendered drawing <laughs> of what everybody was sold on as your idea, and then the shoe comes back and everybody goes, uh, uh, <laughs> it comes out as poop. Project over or do something else. They're like, no, 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 no. They didn't get this detail right. This isn't correct. This isn't correct. Gotcha. Don't judge this. Well, uh, and you know, then you have to wait another month for the next sample to come back or two months. And the process is just brutal. And it's what's inspired me to do what I'm doing in life right now. And what I'm focusing on other than my store, when I spend half my time adding stuff to my store and posting on Instagram, the other half of my time, uh, my whole basement is now a work studio. So I've got uh, sewing machines to make shoes. I've got sewing machines to make the vintage clothing that I've appreciated over the years, which is like, you know, a letterman jacket with all the cool patches on it. Yeah. I hand make all the uh, embroidery on these patches on these machines that I have now. And I'm making shoes um, the way I think they should, should be, be made. made for people, which is taking someone's foot, getting accurate measurements and making something I like the thought of making something for somebody that's going to be their favorite piece, whether it's adding some cool historic story that means something to them from their family or from their interests. So that now becomes their favorite jacket and I can put my name label on that or making them a pair of shoes that it's not going to take them two months to break in before they become good. They're going to put them on the first time they wear them and go, Oh my God, this is, I'm not gonna be able to take these off. And I've been able to get, I've never posted, but a few of the pairs that I've made for my kid, um, I saw, I bought one pair of shoes for my, my boy, who's now four and he started getting a hammer toe immediately, oh, wow. which is that crossover yeah, toe. Cross up. Yeah. And I looked at what we had bought him. Couldn't believe that we did that. He was only wearing them for about a month. Yeesh. And ever since then, he's only been wearing custom shoes that I've made for him and his toes are back to normal where they should be. Oh, um, God. but it's a beautiful time in life right now to be able to experiment with making shoes um, because custom-made shoes is not an affordable option for anybody. Yeah. Um, Cohen, trying to figure this out in L.A. before we moved back up here, you couldn't find anybody that would make custom pair of shoes under 800 bucks. I mean, it's usually starting at $1,000, and you're still getting a general-looking shape that's close to your foot, or you're getting something that you just got to choose the materials for. I'm talking about actually like putting something on your foot that you desire – the materials you like, the colors you like, and it fits your foot like a second skin. And I, my goal really in life right now is to figure out how to do this in a quick fashion where it's not uh, something you have to wait for from a factory. If I can figure out how to do this, and I know I can, um, where it only takes a day to measure your foot, let you pick out materials, pick out a general design, or let you design a little bit, 
and then make that piece without adding all the tech and the bullshit that goes into most shoes. Yeah. I think I can make really good shoes fit your feet and affordable. And that's not really an option that I've ever seen out there because I, I, I'm, I, I would say that a life goal would be to take down the big giants one day. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I'm good dream. I see it is if I can make like fast food chain stores all across the world where it's just a small little store and all I got to do is supply them with three or four machines, simple labor because the pattern is only going to be based on A, B, and C. Let them choose their colors and materials. It should be that quick of a process, but nobody does that because that's not how you make money. And that's yeah. not really my focus. We're not rich by any means. Um, we're going paycheck to paycheck, and it's great that we're selling stuff right now during this time. But I know in my heart that I'm doing something right that I'm I should be doing because I have no thought in my mind about how I'm going to make money within this process of making shoes. It's all I love about that. I respect that so much. Letting other people feel what I've felt in making shoes for your feet and how much different it is. And partly that's why I'm selling all my shoes. I've got another 1,200 pairs of shoes um, that I can't wear any of them because of the toe shape and what's going on inside. Even if I size up a whole size, I have mostly size 12s and sample size 9s in the collection. If I wear some 13s, I still can't fit my feet into those shoes anymore. And I got a pretty slim build of a yeah. body. So, I mean, my foot naturally is pretty slim too. But because I've got my toes back out to their natural anatomy shape, they don't fit in any of the shoes that I own anymore. So they're great to look at, but I'd rather have the money to buy more machinery and figure out how to do this. That's dope, man. I really, I definitely like kudos to you on all of that and i really like hope that you can figure that out one day like who knows but i just like that mentality of like not you know getting stuck in just making money but just figuring out like to do what you love and share like what you really want people to experience when they pit on a pair of shoes so i thought that was dope i know we only got a little bit of time left the last thing i wanted to touch base with you what would you say would be probably let's just go with like your favorite creation over the years what do you think was like your favorite thing you've ever touched um that Jordan 1 slash Chuck Taylor thing was a great story for me to kind of build a project yeah. based on vintage materials and be an innovation. It kind of married everything at once for me. But um, another fun project was doing the Dornbecker Jordan 8. Um, yes, the saw those. It was the first beautiful. time I had done a project at Jordan Brand that wasn't already prescribed on how to do it. Okay. Um, and for those who don't know, um, the Dornbecker is a children's hospital in Portland, and Jordan Brand will – once a year do a big auction where they allow a child who's been sick or is sick to come and put their spin on an Air Max or in this case, an Air Jordan shoe. And then they release a small number to the public and then all those profits go back to the hospital. That's dope. But within this project, I was working with a kid named Caden and he was going through some seriously tough times with cancer and his brother had cancer um, who later passed from it. It was just tough times for the families. Um, but hearing and seeing what they were going through and then seeing the light in his face when he got to come sit with us and talk about what he liked doing, which is like, you know, playing outside and just being a kid. But then he got to see Jordan shoes and he was trying to like marry these two things together. And so me as a designer, I see the kid in me that he he was and how he he didn't know how to put it together but he's 
he was just in another world and you see his eyes light up like in our materials library and and the thought of seeing some of those little uh, drawings that you know were done with a crayon how that could potentially come to life so i put a post on my instagram story it's probably further down that shows it but it shows some of the images that i put together where you know bringing a story to life to me is always fun because you're you're telling a story for somebody and that has a connection that they'll never forget so when i got a tie into these things that he loved, which is just playing outside. So I did this um, iridescent TPU piece on the side of the Jordan shoes that was reminiscent of like sunglasses. Yeah. And then playing outside all night until the stars came out. And I put this white speckle all over the Jordan shoes that glowed in the dark. So that nighttime, you know, you have this like thought of the stars coming out and just how like the galaxy would spin around him. So I did this thumbprint of his that looked like a galaxy that spun out to all these uh, glow-in-the-dark stars it was just kind of a white splatter paint but it was cool because you see the light on his face and how much it affected him um, but to me also as a shoe nerd and loving Jordan stuff to be able to work on a retro Jordan yeah. without anybody giving me handcuffs was awesome because in this program it's all about profits that go back to the hospital so to be able to let the kid do whatever he wants that's he wasn't awesome. designing so much as just telling me what he liked. And so I would say, let's put, you know, the most expensive material here. Let's put <laughs> this over here. And no one's going to tell me no. So yeah. It was like the first time they ever did a clear bottom on a Jordan 8 and put this iridescent finish on the shoes and all these little things that, for the most part, another part of the, the fun of the not fun of that job is usually you sell your, your, your design, your story, your product, you know, in these first rounds of sketching. And everybody loves it but then you get the first sample back and then they price it out to you and they say well we're supposed to be at 120 for this thing yeah. but uh i think you're gonna have to take off like you know 10 or 12 dollars worth of details on this thing and you're like uh if i take this off this off we're gonna be left with nothing <laughs> and it was always the case for every shoe we worked on you always had to sell the story sell the cool of what you're designing and when everybody loved it you always had to get downplayed and go backwards every round after that. Uh, so for that dornbecker jordan retro 8 sounds like just freedom refreshing to not have to go through that backwards process yeah i could imagine <laughs> yeah those were dope man and i i thought that was like that whole story was just awesome the fact that you could just bring that to life and i just thought those were awesome man but before you wrap up, uh, where can people find you on social media? Obviously, we got your website. What's your Instagram for people that want to check out your content? Yeah, it's the same spell out of Dr. Funks. Um, but I, I had to add the word gallery because for some reason someone Somebody had, had a it. Dr. Funks Instagram <laughs> page. <laughs> Don't you hate um, that? So, yeah, Dr. Funks Gallery, all spelled out. It's about the only uh, way you'll ever find what I'm doing. Until I figure out one day how to do like google ads or facebook ads i don't know i gotta do a little more research i'm one person trying to teach myself how to make shit for my downstairs while trying to market myself while trying to sell stuff and i got two kids i got a one-year-old upstairs <laughs> so i'm constantly back and forth. to play with them as much as i can because what a blessing to be able to be home yeah. minus this horrible time that we're in where everybody's home but yeah. before that just to be able to be home while i'm working and go upstairs and have lunch with them and check on them every few hours that's awesome super cool every but, dad's um, dream it's hard to try to i'm not a marketing guy i'm not one i'm not a salesman at all um so all i'm relying on is kind of word of mouth so just having you say this on the podcast is probably the most marketing i've ever had right here <laughs> so thank you <laughs> oh yeah you're doing a good job man i appreciate everything that you've done i appreciate you've been one of the best guests that we've had i appreciate 
you just being a open about everything and I wish you the best of luck, man. You're welcome anytime back on the pod. And, you know, if you ever need any podcast swag, let me know. I'll ship a sweatshirt out there, a T-shirt. So let me know. But, I, man, I really appreciate you being on the pod. Uh, guys, make sure you check out Dr. Funk's Gallery. That's the website. And Instagram. Did I say that right? DrFunksGallery.com. DrFunks.com. DrFunks.com. DrFunksGallery is the Instagram yes. handle. Awesome. So check that out. It's a lot of dope stuff. I'm definitely going to spend this some of this stimulus check money that we're getting in a couple weeks on some stuff on your site. So <laughs> look for that <laughs> in a couple weeks. But, yeah, Chad, I really appreciate you being on, man. And uh, hopefully this quarantine goes by. Hopefully this epidemic, pandemic goes by fast so we can be back outside. But, yeah, I definitely appreciate you for being on the pod, man. Thank you.